Well, hello, this is uh, Courtney Guest Kim. I'm introducing Mr. John O'Neill, author of The Fisherman's Tomb, The True Story of the Vatican's Secret Search. And it's a secret search for St. Peter's grave, um, which um, Pope Francis confirmed uh, did find um, the bones of St. Peter. In fact, more than St. Francis, I mean Pope Francis, he um, in 2013 reaffirmed that they are the bones of St. Peter. Before that, in 1966, Pope Paul VI also recognized these bones. So, um, Mr. O'Neill, tell us why in 2018 should we be reading this book? Why do we need to know? Well, the reason I wrote the book is we live in an incredibly secular world and people just don't touch reality often. They don't even believe in ancient history, much less uh, these are born, they think they're fictional figures, Courtney, like a movie, and they aren't. They were real people, they really did live. The uh, bones and tomb of St. Peter, which have been located, are the oldest fully authenticated Christian relics in the entire world. The process of finding them was amazing, and of course, they themselves are amazing. Um, the uh, inscriptions found close to the tomb of Peter are foundational. That is, to anybody who's a Christian, they're incredibly important. Um, they reaffirm, they show that Christians at the very earliest time, roughly 66 to 250 AD, believed exactly the same things we believe now. A lot of people claimed in the 1960s and 70s, my faith was tested by the claim that Christianity was just a cult, that it was just an evolving cult, and it wasn't. From, from inception, People believed that Christ was divine and that through his death on the cross, he had made resurrection possible for all of us. And they, they had to write it in code and so on. But they actually etched that in stone 400 yards from the emperor's palace under fear of being killed from the very beginning of the Christian religion. Right, so one of the things about this book um, that you wrote is um, a little different from a couple of earlier books that do talk about the discovery of the grave of St. Peter back in the, wait, 1939. Um, so there was another book I read, I think it was originally published in 1982, where the factual information is you know, the details, it goes into more maybe technical details about the measurements and so forth, but in this book you really give a lot of context, which I get the impression has not been done before in terms of the historical tying in both what was going on in 1939 in Italy um, as going all the way back to the beginnings of the church. The, the, the uh, first real book on this subject was by John Evangeline Walsh. That's what I'm talking 1982. about. 1982. Mm -hmm. It was a wonderful book. Right. Um, Margarita Carducci cooperated in, and was the force behind the writing of that book. And my book just stands on the shoulders of John Walsh's, Evangeline Walsh's book. The reason why I thought it was important to write my book is first, there's an awful lot of new information since 1982 about what actually transpired, including a lot of physical evidence. Second, um, he didn't have the backstory, which is very interesting. 
of the of the uh, aid of the given to the Pope uh, by the Strakes here in Houston, uh, by people like Monsignor uh, Walter Carroll, and and the like. And so I thought that adding those two in, um, plus the opening of the Scabby tour and a lot of other stuff, made it worthwhile to write a, another book. But the, the Walsh book is a wonderful book, and I recommend it to anybody to read. Um, it's, it's, as you say, more technical than mine. It, it stands, in turn, on the shoulders of two books by Margarita Garducci in 1960 and 1966. Those are great books, but they're so technical, they're very hard to read. So what I was trying to do is produce a book that would be easy to read, that the average person could read because the, in truth, what was found here is really, it's really, really important to all Christians, to Catholics, to all other Christians, and really to everybody. Um, so I tried to make it a, a simple, easy to read book to, for that reason. Well, and one of the things that struck me about this book is that um, <clears throat> uh, you make it clear that the 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 actual grave where Peter was buried originally was venerated by Christians and became a a place that they went to from the very beginning. So, could you tell us just start at the beginning and what is you well, know here's who's Saint Peter and, and what here, happened to him? <laughs> in, uh, of course, Peter was sort of Christ's man, I guess you'd say. Uh, he was clearly the uh, leader of the church on earth. Peter was conveyed the keys to, to the church by Christ who said that whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And so he was clearly the leader. Now, he was a quixotic human being. He do half the stuff wrong and half the stuff right. He was very human. He's the same guy who would deny Christ uh, right when the three roosters crowed and at the same time would defend Christ all by himself against an, an armed mob uh, who right after Christ was crucified went into the Sanhedrin and, and berated them all, the highest legal authority for doing what they did, who would have almost died from that. Uh, he was a fisherman and uh, if we assume he was about 30 years old or so when he met Christ, around 66 AD he would have been 65 years old. He was uh, of course, what we know from the Bible is that he was the early leader of the entire church. He uh, started in Jerusalem, he traveled, and the Bible leaves him in 44 AD in Antioch. And as to what happened after that, there's only this clue. There are two letters of Peter's, for Peter 1 and Peter 2, First and Second Peter, if you want to call them that. They don't actually tell us where they're from. They make allusions to Babylon, but... Uh, they're a man on the run. He, he knows he's going to be killed. At least reading the, that's how I read them and I think how most biblical scholars read them. Because the Bible doesn't tell us exactly where he went, a lot of people denied that Peter ever went to Rome at all. Luther, for example, claims that uh, St. Peter's was built on a pagan foundation and claims that Peter never, was likely Peter never went to uh, Rome at all. So there was, ambiguity. Now the great tradition of the church was that we know 
that Nero in 66 AD, he was a terrible human being, started a, a fire in Rome just to clear out the center of Rome to build a huge palace. He was going to build a statue 110 feet high of himself standing on the world. He started the fire in the summer of 66 AD. It burned out the entire center of Rome, all the great temples, that had, one of them, the, the Temple of uh, Jupiter, had gone on for 700 years. It was the heart of the, of the Roman city. He burned out all the great houses on the Palatine Hill, and so the Romans were really willing to get him, and he started the rumor that the Christians had, had done this. He behaved terribly with the Christians. He got them. He uh, turned them into human torches to light his garden. He took the little kids and tied them, sewed them into, the, into wild animal hides and had dogs tear them apart. Even the Roman historians, who were not uh, a meek people, were appalled by how terribly he treated the Christians. He killed Paul. And Paul Relight in 2 Timothy recites that his impending death, I fought the good fight, I've run the race to the finish. He also got Peter, tradition says, that they uh, captured him, that he was uh, taken to the emperor's gardens about 400 yards from the present Vatican Hill to be killed. And he asked only that he be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to be crucified in the same way as Christ. Um, there, are, there are contemporaneous accounts that shows that the Roman soldiers really did crucify people in different positions and then they would bet on how long they'd live. It was sort of a, a joke betting game to them as these people died terribly. Tradition said after his death, the Romans threw his body on a trash heap at Vatican Hill and the followers of, of Christ came. They got uh, Peter and they wrapped him in a purple and gold cloth and they buried him right there. And that later a uh, marker, sometimes called Gaius's trophy, was erected over Peter's grave. Um, there are accounts in 96 AD, Ignatius, a, a bishop who was taken to Rome to be killed. And he said, and I'm paraphrasing, I'm really happy to be going to Rome so I can die like Peter and Paul did. In 150 AD, approximately, Gaius said, look, if you don't believe in all of this, uh, come with me and I'll take you to Vatican Hill and I'll show you a uh, trophy built over the grave of Peter by Christian. Finally, in 444 AD, a book of popes, the book of popes says Peter was buried directly under St. Peter's. But that wonderful St. Peter's that we all saw, nobody had any real idea what was under it. Um, in 330 AD, circa 300, actually 315 to 330 AD, the modern Saint, the original St. Peter's was constructed out of wood at the request of Helena. Tradition said it was spot on over Peter's grave. And then Rome fell. The great barbarian invasions occurred. All knowledge of what was under St. Peter's and so on died. Uh, most written works in the world died, knowledge really died. And that's pretty much where things stood for almost a thousand years. In 1500, St. Peter's was collapsing, and so Pope Julius and other popes determined that the original wooden St. Peter's had to be replaced. 
it was a tragedy the way they did it, candidly, because the great artwork of Giotto, uh, the tombs of uh, over 100 popes were all simply destroyed and discarded, and the new St. Peter's was built. The one thing that they didn't do is in any way disturb the foundations of St. Peter's, except that they dropped two shafts down to see if they could find Peter. What the shafts found were exactly what they didn't want to find at all, because they ran across a, a statue of a half-naked guy holding a, a goblet of wine in the air, and it was inscribed, bring me the young girls, for tomorrow you will die too. This was not what the, what the uh, priests were looking for, particularly after Luther had claimed that it was all built on a pagan foundation. So they got the statue, and they threw it in the Tiber, and they sealed the shafts, but word of what they did sort of leaked out to some degree. And from that time, for 400 years, no one went under St. Peter's at all. Nobody wanted to go under St. Peter's. After that experience, I mean, that seemed to invalidate everything. That's why it was so incredibly brave that Pius XII was willing to launch this. The way it got launched is in the most fortuitous of circumstances. There's much about the whole search when you think about it. It just, it's amazing it could happen like that. But Pius XI wanted to be buried under St. Peter's. There were other people buried under there, but not in a long time. And so they determined they would erect an altar for him. And they began digging the altar and a workman fell 25 feet down. He was in a magnificent room, uh, maybe twice the size of this room, had, with fabulous Roman artwork, mosaics, statuary all around, that no one had any idea were there. They looked a little further and they found the tomb of a, of a Christian woman named Amelia Verganus, who was 28 years old. Her tomb was decorated with a, the familiar fish symbol of the Christians, and uh, most especially the Samaritan woman pouring the jar of grace. The Samaritan woman being the very first person to announce that Christ was uh, the Messiah in the Bible. And this, this is 400 yards from the tomb of, I mean, from the uh, nearest, you know, palace. There is nothing, I've looked, in the whole world at Christian ruins, and there is virtually nothing from the first or second century. That's because they were on the run, they were being killed everywhere. You can find a few little things that may be Christian in Ephesus. There are, are the tops of a cave down in uh, southeast Turkey that have actual Christian drawings in catacombs. There are a few references in the catacombs, but there's nothing. And so to find a Christian tomb 400 yards from the emperor's deal, it's like in your face. Mm -hmm. It's like the Al-Qaeda operating something next to the Pentagon. It's inconceivable because Christianity was an underground religion. Well, based on that, Pius decided he wanted to, he wanted to take a gamble and see if he could find it. His first step was to go into the Vatican Library where those found those three pieces that I mentioned of documentation the Vatican Library is, if you ever get a chance to see it, one of the most magnificent libraries in the world. It has a million, 100,000 volumes, but it has 75,000 codices, original codices from prior to the time of the collapse of the empire, and uh, that exists nowhere else in the world, now in microfilm, but nowhere else other than that. And uh, it is a tremendous reservoir of information 
course, to make it all go through, he organized some extraordinary people. Ludwig Koss, the last, the last leader of opponents of the Nazis in Germany who was moved to the Vatican so they wouldn't be killed. Uh, Father Walter Carroll, a fabulous American uh, man with uh, incredible joy of life who, who knew he would die in a short time because of his heart. Um, the fellow who had become Pope, Pope Paul VI, then called Montini, and a guy named McGow, who was an amazing con man, who set up a scheme called the Refugee Bureau that saved the lives of hundreds of thousands of Jews in World War II. And this was their task. Well, the church is broke. This is 1939, 1940. The Great Depression has descended. Mexico's gone. Uh, Spain is in ruins. Uh, the German Nazis are occupying most of the continent of Europe. Uh, Poland's gone. <coughs> All of Eastern Europe has gone to the communists. Italy is occupied by the fascists. The Great Depression has descended on the whole world. So the church didn't have money to throw into a project of infinite cost. And so what they literally did was show up right over here a few blocks away. I just met the guy who is living there actually this morning. And they, they uh, showed up at this house on Inwood in an English Tudor house, and they saw George Strait there. This Since is they were in Houston, Texas. In I Houston, Texas. <laughs> and uh, they offered him a proposition that would be unappealing to anybody they ever knew of a right mind. Strait had given immense amounts of money to the Catholic Church, but the proposition, they said, Mr. Strait, I'm an emissary from Pope Pius XII, and he would like to know wants to thank you for everything you've done, but he would like to know if you would be willing to finance the most secret and most um, important project of the Catholic Church. If you do this, no one will ever know that you participated in this. The project may completely fail and the cost is infinite, like a blank check. And uh, straight, inexplicably said, yes. Said, what's the project? And they said, well, we're gonna try and find Peter under St. Peter's. And so Strait became the financing source for all of that, and probably provided technical assistance as well at a critical time in 1951. Um, and so that's how the project kicked off. The Nazis controlled Europe, and in the middle of the project, 1943, the Italian government collapsed, and the Nazis actually occupied Rome itself, began executing Jews right in Rome and occupied the whole areas around the Vatican. The Pope ins insisted that all the work be done uh, with hand tools so that it would be completely secret and completely quiet. The temperatures inside, under, in the underground, when they were doing this, were horrible. They were 110 to 120 in the summers. They had a constant threat of cave-ins. There was dust everywhere. It was uh, terrible, and he did it with priests and with Vatican workers who were all sworn to secrecy and as for nine years, absolutely no one had any idea this project was underway. They started at one end and where the workmen had fallen in with the big room and they quickly realized that that big room was just one of a whole series of Roman tombs. Let's just stop and say how it is that nobody knew. Just you said the barbarians invaded Rome, and for a thousand years, 
Right. There were no records, but basically um, what had been completely forgotten was that there really were a whole, almost a little town, a little, uh, not a little, a cemetery, a Roman cemetery on, on Vatican Hill. Right. right. What, uh, what the Romans had done after Peter, Peter's body was thrown, it was a trash heap then. Well, what happened is the whole, the Romans had Roman family tombs. So if you took like John O'Neill, I would be in a tomb with five generations one way, five generations another way, and the tomb would be like a second house. If you think about a vacation house, that was sort of what the tomb was like. And everybody would go there five, six times a year to celebrate Genovese and other uh, Roman festivals. And when people walked out of town on the Appian Way, they'd go over, hey, there's the Joneses house and there's the such and such house. And it commemorated the dignitas of the whole family. The Romans believed that they really lived for the dignity and honor of individual families. Well, when the Appian Way filled up, people began building around 100 AD, maybe even earlier, 75 AD. They began building these family tombs on the Vatican Hill, which was actually a hill in those days. And you could see the hill as you left Rome, and they built some fabulous family tombs on that hill, okay? Roll forward a little bit, and Constantine becomes the emperor after terrible persecutions, and he promises his mother that he'll build a, a church right over Peter's grave. He's got a problem. If he knocks down those family tombs, he, he's going to have a war in his hands. All those families are going to go to war with him. And yet at the same time, he's got to have a flat place to build a great church. The solution was to fill it, to bring in millions of tons of fill and flatten it to the top and then build the church on top of that, centering the whole thing over Peter's grave. The effect of that was to create a hidden world underneath that uh, church that nobody realized existed in later years. So they fill it, there are all those tombs underneath there, and then who sweeps in but the Vandals, the Gauls, wave after wave of barbarians, all those families are all killed off. There are no old ancient Roman families. All written knowledge and the ability to read largely dies everywhere and knowledge of what was under there completely died. No one had any idea that any of that was there. Now the tradition of St. Peter being there survived, but only as a loose tradition. The writings and so on were all gone except for the ones I described. Uh, so when they began excavating, what did they run into? But Roman tomb after Roman tomb, the greatest collection of Roman artwork and statuary really in the whole world. Uh, now a fabulous tour called the Scavi Tour and for the vividness, at least, of colors and so on, I think the greatest collection of Roman art in the world. Um, it's ironic, but when Michelangelo is walking through the Vatican and is trying to duplicate Roman art, 12 or 15 feet below him is the greatest collection of Roman art in the whole world that exists, and he has no idea it's there, neither did anybody else. So they began um, doing that. They go to Roman tomb after tomb, and then they decide we're gonna give up on that and we're gonna go right to the center. They're at this point are headed by Father Ferrua, who has replaced, effectively replaced Ludwig Koss in charge of it. Father Ferrua is a fine and dedicated man, but he's a bit of a treasure hunter as opposed to a systematic archeologist. 
And so he heads right for the center because he thinks that's where Peter is going to be found based on the Book of Popes. In the center, they find one of the strangest structures that's ever been encountered in all of archaeology. They find first the altar, if I can call it that, built by Bernini in the construction of the new St. Peter's. And now you're talking about going from the outside in, right? They, they skip over everything okay. and go dead center into the center. Okay. Instead of working methodically in, mm -hmm. they abandon the Roman tombs okay. at that time. Okay. In 1942, 43, they go dead to the center, right to where they think Peter's going to be found. And in the dead center, they find first a uh, tomb, a wall, or enclosure built at the time that the original church was, uh, the new St. Peter's was built. So in the 16th century. 1500s. 1500s. Roughly 1500. Mm -hmm. All right, they've got to break that open, which is kind of a tragedy in itself, but they break it open. It's, un it's sealed, which is very important. Uh, inside of it is another enclosure built in the 1100s by uh, in the age of the Crusades. It's also sealed, so nobody ever went in there since 1100. Inside that, they find an enclosure built by Pope Gregory, roughly 600 AD, likewise completely sealed. And they break open the last one and they're on the inside now. They find the trophy of Gaius, that long ago trophy that people said they would find there. It looks like a pagan marker, but when you look on the inside of it, it has invocations to the saints. So the Christians circa 150, they can't erect a cross Why everybody would be killed by the Romans. So they erect a pagan looking marker and they put their prayers on the inside of it. Mm -hmm. They think they've solved the puzzle and they find some bones close to but not under the marker near a wall. And they think for a while those are, are the bones of Peter without declaring them as such. When those are tested much later, they're the bones of a woman, not a man, and so they're not Peter's bones. Immediately next to the marker is a wall that becomes very, very important called the graffiti wall. Father Ferua dismisses the graffiti wall as unreadable. He says it's, a, it's just all meaningless graffiti and he ignores the graffiti wall. In terms of the human remains that are being encountered, they simply ship these to storage and don't analyze them in any way. And they make little effort to preserve the murals. They, they regard the Roman murals as not particularly valuable because they're, they're not Christian objects. Okay, so they solve the problem where the tomb is, but there are no relics of Peter there. Word leaks out, many other things happen. The Jews are hidden in the underground and in the Vatican to preserve them from the Nazis oh, in World War II. All this is going on simultaneously. All of it's happening at the same time. Mm -hmm. And uh, the entire underground floods in 1948, it's almost all lost. Uh, the communists try to take over Italy and they fail. Uh, the strikes help out in, in all of that a uh, great deal. Understand that the, what George Strike did was discovered the third largest oil field ever discovered in the United States and he took all the money and gave it to the Catholic Catholic causes. Right, so we have to, part of your story is telling us about the people, the personal stories that are all right. involved in this extraordinary discovery. And George Strake, of course, is important, not just as a Houstonian, but as a financier, basically, of this entire project. Well, he's an astounding character. Uh, 
you know, the, the oil industry isn't full of people like George Strait. Uh, no industry is. And George Strait's born the tenth of ten children, uh, an orphan. His parents die. He's raised by his two sisters. They have no money, can't go to school of any kind. He's a messenger boy for Western Union. Uh, he takes the test for St. Louis University being self-educated. Uh, he passes it, and they learn he's never been to school, and then they do an amazing thing. They let him into St. Louis University and give him a full scholarship. He takes geology and engineering. Uh, he graduates, does very well, and then goes and fights in the First World War. He's in the Army Air Corps. He's a wireless operator, which becomes important later on because he begins investing in radio. At the end of the war, uh, he has the idea of buying someday, his dream is to buy a valley in, in uh, Colorado. He marries a woman named Susan. Susan becomes really critical to him twice. Uh, Susan's, George is sort of a, he's sort of an introverted, gruff guy. I mean, what do you have when you have an oil guy who's been in the army? It's not, you know, that's George. Well, Susan is a person that everybody loves. Ever, no one, you never meet anyone who, who Susan didn't love and who didn't love Susan. And so they get married, they go to Tampico, Mexico, where he's in charge of the golf office. And Susan does the first really important thing. She starts taking care of the little babies next door. The little babies next door are Jim, Pat, and, uh, Jim, Pat, and Bill Buckley, the three Buckley children, famous Bill Buckley who started National Review, Jim Buckley, Senator from New York. And the Buckleys grow to love Susan and George, and so they, they say, look, go in the oil business down here and we'll back you. And so he goes in the oil business. He's very successful for both himself and the Buckleys. And he makes a great move. He sells out before the Mexican government seizes everything around circa 1924, <coughs> 25. He makes a bad move. He goes to Korea, uh, to Cuba to go in the car business. Um, the Great Depression descends. He says to Susan, Susan, we better get out of here uh, before we have to swim back. And he's going to Oregon to be in the lumber business. And the fortuity of all this always strikes me in this whole story, including the Vatican story. He goes to Houston only because his mother, his mother-in-law is dying. And so he can't stay in the hospital, it's just not in him. But he's in Houston, so he wanders around southeast of Conroe, um, north of Houston. And he notices that the animals are not drinking any of the water and that uh, all the creeks flow to the northeast. And so from that, he leases up 10,000 acres in an area that the oil company after oil company drilled and went bankrupt in. And he goes to all the big oil companies and tries to raise money to drill. They all laugh at him. They say, where's your seismic? Where's your reservoir engineering? And he says, well, the animals don't drink the water and so on. And that doesn't go very far. And so he goes to Susan and he says, Susan, I'd like to drill this, it'll take the last money we have on earth, we'll be out in the street if I don't hit, but I'm pretty sure there's oil there, will you stand with me? And Susan says, George, I'll do it on one condition. And he says, well, what's the condition? And she says, George, I'll stand with you in this if you agree that if you hit oil, you will never question anything else I buy for the rest of my life. Well, George signs on um, without letting the story out, Susan becomes a famous shopper. <laughs> before the story is, is all over. And uh, George drills. First he hits only gas, which is kind of a booby prize in those days. 
but they start a filling station, take the liquids out of the gas, and they drill a second time. The second time, they hit the third largest oil field ever hit in the United States, the biggest oil field ever owned by a single individual. Um, that oil field produced over 500 million barrels of crude oil in the Second World War alone through the big inch, carried through the big inch pipeline. He becomes inconceivably wealthy. He almost loses everything in a huge blowout by another operator in 1933. He brings great people in. They bring the oil field back under control. And so by 1930, when Walter Carroll approaches him, he's one of the wealthiest men in the world, but he has this strange little picadillo, and that picadillo is on his desk. He has a saying that says, God doesn't care what you do with your money when you die. He only cares what you do with it while you're alive. It's 1940, and right? This is 1940. Yeah, okay. At any rate, and so he gives it all, he's giving everything he has away to the Catholic Church and causes of the Catholic Church, which is why they come and approach him. He has a second condition, and only one. His condition is that if he gives you the money for a project, he will never tell anybody that he gave it to you. And you won't name it after him. There's, you're not going to be Rockefeller Center. You're not going to be the, you know, uh, all the places in the Metropolitan Museum. There's not going to be a strike. Anything. He's just going to give you the money. Except the high school. And uh, anonymously, every donation is anonymous. The, we have the strike high school, strike Jesuit high school. All after he died. Oh really? Okay. It was Houston Jesuit during okay. his life. Okay. And uh, okay. he died in 1969. <clears throat> High school had to be refunded uh, because they lost all their money, and so the strikes after his death refunded it. Okay. They named it Strike Jesuit. In the same way with the Strike Stout Camp north of here. Okay. Um, never until his death, after okay. his death, it would not. He wouldn't permit anything to be named after him. St. Joseph's Hospital, he started and endowed, wouldn't permit it to be named after him. St. Anne's, uh, you won't find his name anywhere on St. Anne's. It was designed around his kitchen table, hmm. actually. Um, and a million other things. There is only one statue of George Strait in the whole world, or two of them. Uh, one is in Conroe, picture of him as an oil guy. Second, in a faraway place called Garbatelli in, in a bad part of Rome, there's his likeness. And, and they put it up. He didn't agree to it. They just put it up there. A newspaper account said he saved Italy from the communists. And he has a look, I've always thought, as I mentioned to you, the look on his face is, what am I doing here in Garbatelli in Rome? Uh, anyway, they stuck it up. He, uh, so he was the perfect donor to come to. Um, he was used to a project with tremendous risk. He, had, he was incredibly a devout Christian. He read the Bible every single day, deeply Catholic, uh, a deep devotion to the church. And he believed that all of his wealth had been given to him by God to give back. He described, he said, all those oil companies thought I was a crazy wildcatter. He said, what they didn't know is I was a crazy wildcatter with God on my shoulder. And so that's how he happened to be picked for this particular thing. And he funded this project and many others continuously throughout his life with hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. So this is a, an extraordinary story of an American but there are two other American priests, right, in Rome, who at one point, towards the end of the war, were the only two Americans in Rome, I think, according to your book. They were. And they were very much involved, not only in this project, but in um, several other very important projects. 
Well, Father Walter Carroll and, and, and Monsignor McGow are the two. Mm -hmm. uh, Walter Carroll and McGow convinced the Germans to set up, to permit what was called the Refugee Bureau. The Germans had had many soldiers captured in North Africa and so on, so the Germans thought, hey, if we can get some Americans to run the Refugee Bureau, that'll make things better for all of our refugees. And, and in fact, McGow and, and Carroll did help the German prisoners of war, but they helped a few other people that the Germans didn't have in mind. Through their ability to cross through the lines, they were able to set up what's called the Rome Line. And the Rome Line was used to, to save the lives of hundreds of thousands of Jews after the Nazis seized control. In every other country in Europe, a few thousand Jews survived the Second World War. Rome, I mean, uh, Italy had a Jewish population of a million 700,000 survived World War II. Great number because of the Rome line. The Vatican was full of, of uh, Jewish refugees. Uh, I've heard that the Pope's quarters were actually used as a maternity ward, but I haven't validated that, but I think that that has the ring of truth to me. And uh, uh, the priests were warned if they went outside the Vatican, they would be killed by the SS. Um, so they did that. Strike helped to so fund all. So the Germans all knew about this, the Germans. The Nazis knew this was going on, but they had an agreement not to go into the Vatican. Is that how well, they, they managed were, to do this? Or? Actually, uh, in 1944, as Rome was falling, Hitler ordered the head of uh, the SS in Rome, a man named Wolf, General Wolf ordered him to seize the Pope and seize the Vatican and fight in the Vatican. He defied orders, which probably saved his life later on when he was tried as a war criminal. Uh, he was a Catholic and he just didn't do it. He just didn't seize the Pope. Um, and, and they declared Rome as an open city, which saved Rome. Uh, the Allies fought their way up the Italian peninsula in 1943 and they came up with the idea of landing close to Rome to try and seize Rome in what is called the Anzio invasion. They landed about 35 miles from Rome at Anzio on the beachhead and they became stuck. That is that they were stuck on the beachhead by the high hills around it. The Allies lost 42,000 dead and captured at Anzio, the greatest losses of the Second World War in the Western, in Western Europe in a single campaign, more than uh, Normandy more than the Battle of the Bulge and so the logical solution was to destroy completely the city of Rome which was the logistics base of the Germans but uh, probably in large part due to the meetings that Father Carroll had here in the United States with Franklin Roosevelt whom he met with for two and a half hours and with General Clark and with General Eisenhower all of whom by the way all the living people who sent letters when he died in 1950 about how important he had been in World War II, he convinced them not to. And so the Allies took those casualties. And when they went into Rome, the guy leading them in a jeep was none other than Father Walter Carroll. His mother was asked by the Pittsburgh Press on the day that Rome fell, July 3rd, 1944, you must be really worried about your son. And she said, oh no, Walter won't be anywhere close to Rome. And then a picture appeared all over the world of this jeep with Walter Carroll in the front of it and the generals in the back of it going into Rome. 
they were pivotal. Um, the project could not have gone forward without the two of them, and their loss is what complicated the project later on in later years. George Drake went and actually built a um, wonderful bell tower to commemorate Father uh, Carroll upon Father Carroll's death in 1950. And Paul VI, the Pope, came to the United States specifically to visit Walter Carroll's grave as well as to see the Strakes. Well, tell us about um, another very important um, contributor to the whole project, which is this Italian um, archaeologist, um, that this woman who wasn't originally a devout Catholic by any means. Most unusual of, hero, of heroines, truly. Uh, her name was Margarita Garducci. By 1950, she was one of the most famous archaeologists in the world. She broke what was called the Great Epigraph. That was a set of big stone walls uh, that had markings on them that everybody said were indecipherable. She was able to read them. They were the complete laws of a Greek city-state at the beginning of the Golden Age of Greece. A great deal of what we know about Greece comes from, from that, from her work, which took 24 years understand these are just scratches on a wall and nonetheless over many years she was able to interpret them read them and then publish book after book on them so she was very very famous in 1950 word leaked out of the discoveries under the Vatican and the Pope confirmed that the tomb that is the the uh, trophy had been discovered and said no one knew for sure whether the bones had been discovered he was very concerned with the nature of work. The Strakes were brought actually to Rome, all of them, and met with the Pope after this. They met with Father Koss, and they met with uh, Ferua, and so on. Um, Father Carroll had died by then. And I'm convinced, I cannot prove, here I speculate, but it's good speculation. I'm convinced they met with George Strake, and they described how uncomfortable they were with the work that was actually being done, had actually been done. And I believe Strake would have told them, get the best person, the best man in the world to go finish this off, I'll pay for it. And have him look at it, finish it off. They would have said, George, the best man in the world is not a man. The best man in the world is a woman. And he would have, no doubt, he or the Pope would have said, well, at least she's a good Catholic and so on, and that's what's really important. And they would have said, no, uh, not really, George, she's an agnostic. And that was Margarita Carducci. And they brought Margarita Carducci in just to look at it, inspect it for a week. Margarita Carducci looked at it, met directly with the Pope and uh, Monsignor Montini, later the Pope, and said, I'm sure, they said, boy, aren't, you know, aren't, isn't this great that we've done this? And she, she said, it's a disaster. It's an archaeological disaster. No one has preserved these uh, fabulous paintings. No one has read these epigrams. And I myself can read some of them and see their great significance. Uh, no one's analyzing forensically the bones that have been discovered. And this is just not the way it should be done. And amazingly, instead of just running her off, what the Pope did was fire Father Peru and the other people who had worked on the excavation fired all of them, excluded them from even going down there, and placed Margarita Garducci in charge. So the project for Garducci that was supposed to take a week of her life 
ended up taking uh, 25 years. She continued to teach at the University of Rome, but each afternoon she would go and her very first project, well, the very first thing she did was bring in some of the greatest archeologists in the world, uh, Arnold Toynbee, Joplin Toynbee, and other scientists from Germany to work on those great Roman artworks and tombs that were discovered. She herself worked on all the etchings that she found, all the scratches on a wall called the graffiti wall and elsewhere. To understand what she was doing, uh, I mean, this is one scratch over another scratch over another scratch. To the untrained eye, it's just a set of scratches. Well, you first photograph it, then you have to determine what scratch goes with what scratch. And there's another little wrinkle. The problem is, you see, if the Christians wrote uh, Peter's name or they wrote Christ's name, they would have found themselves, you know, as a human torch or being wiped out by lions in the in the Colosseum or, or gladiators. So they had to speak and write in code. And so they scratched their little messages with stones in that wall in code. Peter became a P symbol, sometimes with an E under it, and with two keys over the P. Now to a Roman, that wouldn't mean anything at all, but to a Christian who knows that Peter was given the keys to the kingdom, it had great meaning. Uh, they took the symbols Alpha and Omega, and they put, uh, for example, Courtney, Omega Alpha. Courtney is gone, but this is just the beginning of Courtney, um, from the book of Revelations and from the Greek alphabet. Uh, they took Christ, and they represented Christ through a Cairo symbol, the first two letters of Christ's name in the Greek alphabet. And they would take that and put a line, and next to the line they'd put a T symbol like a Roman cross, and then another symbol, and that it would put the, the letter V for victory or the letter R for redemption. And so they were expressing all the things that we believe in in their own coded way at a very early time. She went and was able to find exactly the same symbols carved by prisoners awaiting their execution in the prisoner section of the Colosseum at about the same time, and in Ephesus in, uh, in Turkey. And so from that, she knew she had a real code. Now, what she found on the graffiti wall, 18 inches from dead center, were 20 different inscriptions for Peter, in effect invoking Peter's aid, prayers, asking for Peter's help. And she found, after a time, the words, Peter is near. She saw a picture that had Peter is near in it and learned that the actual inscription had been moved to Father Perot's apartment and then on orders of the Pope it was returned and, and she, she therefore thought there had to be something in the graffiti wall that caused all that. And she saw an empty niche there. She asked a workman what was in the niche and she learned in 1940, 20 years before, there had been bones in that niche and they had been put into a box and shoveled into storage. She got the bones out of storage. She delivered them to uh, Dr. Carenti, who was at that time the greatest forensic anthropologist in the world. They've been studied now many, many times. The bones are the bones of a 60 to 70 year old man. He was crucified upside down. His feet were cut off and there are nail marks. Um, he was crucified in the first century. He was wrapped in a, in a gold and uh, a gold and uh, purple cloth. Purple is very significant. 
because purple is a direct act of revolution against the emperor. In other words, purple is what you would wrap a king in. So that, did that happen at the time of his death, or that would have been later? No one knows, honestly. Okay. The bones themselves in the wall have the purple and gold cloth, but they're fragments only, and so they don't know whether it was done when he died or when he was put in the wall. The bones do have adhering to them dirt from, from when they were underneath the trophy of Gaius. So you know that they started off in the dirt and then they were moved into the wall. You can date when they were moved into the wall because the wall was, was constructed in 250 AD and then it was sealed for 2,000 years in 310 AD. So the bones were definitely moved in that period of time. Carducci thought that they were moved as part of the process of construction. I personally am convinced that they were moved because the Romans began to actually desecrate all the Christian sites in that period of time under the persecution that began in 250 AD and then the terrible persecution of Diocletian that began a little later. And I think they just moved them for safekeeping and, and uh, I think that's why they did that. Now, the inscriptions on the wall predate the movement, uh, may well predate the movement of the bones and there are also other inscriptions to Peter all throughout the area. There are coins. There are many first century popes, several first century popes buried around Peter's grave, uh, obviously because Peter was there. And um, so that's what she found. Uh, Father, I mean, uh, Dr. Parenti authenticated it. She went to Pope Paul VI, uh, presented what he, she had found. Father Pura argued vigorously that those weren't Peter's bones, that Peter had never gone to Rome, that whatever you want to, you know, a mouse had crawled into the box, so the claim was that she was presenting the bones of a mouse as if they were a saint. Of course, there was a small mouse, but the pathologist can separate the mouse bones from the, those of Peter. Um, there were other little fragments of bone in the, in the box, what happened is when Peter was buried, he was buried on a mound that they'd been throwing animals and people on for 6,000 years. And so when the bones were exhumed and placed in the wall, small fragments went with them. Uh, but there were the identified bones, almost complete, missing only a skull and two fingers of Peter, in effect. Um, Pope Paul VI appointed six scientists. Their conclusion was that was Peter and in 1966. That's exactly what Pope Paul VI announced. She wrote a, uh, a great book that came out in 1977. The forward is by Pope Paul VI. And that's where everything stood. Peter was placed right in back in that wall and on public display. And then Everybody died, that's the only way to explain it. George Strait died in 1969, pushing a car up a hill. Uh, Father Carroll died in 1950. Monsignor McGow died in uh, 1970. Uh, Father Cass died in 1952. And finally, Pope Paul VI died. Within four days of Pope Paul VI's death, and when there was no Pope, Father Perua fired Margarita Carducci. In the meantime, he had become head of the archaeological department in the Vatican, he fired her 
She was 76 years old, and he no doubt thought that made an end. And he took those bones, and he put them in storage, and took them out of the wall. Any reference to her or her discovery was obliterated from the Vatican uh, information. If he thought that finished her, he made a terrible, terrible mistake. <laughs> Margarita Cartucci was among the, the most committed uh, people. She went back to teaching at the University of Rome. She wrote article after article. She participated in the, in the book of John Evangeline Walsh on the bones that 1982, you, then. 1982, and she continued to fight strongly for that. Um, she also made remarkable discoveries. She was able to determine the origin of the Black Madonna, the national symbol of Poland, as well as the, uh, what the earliest picture of Mary and Jesus actually looked like that used to be in the Hagia Sophia. She found a copy that, in effect, linked the two of them and proved what the earliest look was and what the Black Madonna looked like. She was able to authenticate a statue, a bronze statue in the Vatican that people thought was just sort of a bad artwork as the earliest uh, Christian statue in the world, uh, a statue of Peter that actually was in the Tomb of the Emperors. Um, she fought a great uh, battle and she culminated sort of in a debate in 1992 she was led up on the stage by her sister, she was blind, and uh, it was moderated by Frederico, Frederico Zetti, who was the head of Sotheby Europe. At the end of the debate, he said, uh, Margarita, uh, you're a diamond bit for the truth. Your only client is the truth. I don't believe in Christianity, I don't believe in that, but I know I've studied your work closely and there's absolutely no question you found Peter. The entire group applauded. She continued fighting for the same thing through 1995 when she finally went home. She died before the new century. Her teacher, her pupils described how she would teach with her hands, literally, uh, sort of drawing with her hands all the epigraphs that she had seen over the years. Uh, upon her death, they named a road for her the Via Margarita Carducci. Uh, there is no Via Father Ferrua in Rome, as far as we know. And Pope Benedict reopened study of the entire thing, matter. After his resignation, Pope Francis had the benefit of all the work that Pope Benedict had done. And in 2015, he announced to a crowd of 8,000 at the end of the church's evangelical year that these, in fact, behold Peter's bones. And he authenticated the find, as many experts have done. And so she was right. Father Furrow was wrong. And they, in fact, located Peter right where you would have expected him. And it has a curious twist to it, uh, Courtney, because you have Christ in the New Testament saying, upon this rock, to Peter, upon, I, I name you Peter, in effect, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that was not only symbolically true, but literally true. That is that the, the greatest Christian church in the world, St. Peter's, is actually built on top of and centered on the, on the grave of Peter the Apostle. And uh, so she found him okay. And the inscriptions around him are fundamental to 
to the Christian faith for anyone. Well, I think um, from all the evidence, uh, it's clear, certainly from the archaeological evidence, that um, you know, in these basilicas and built one inside the other, that um, the dating and the locating of the burial place is really uh, well, you would have something to. you can't argue against because it goes all the way back uh, to the first century, like you said. So, um, you know, there's no question that the Christians of that time were commemorating that site as his burial place, and then that's just been added onto or added around, I guess, in the subsequent You would centuries. have to believe in a monstrous fraud. <laughs> You'd have to believe that back in the first century, the Christians who were being killed constantly by the Romans took out somebody about 60 to 70 years old and they crucified him upside down and then they put him there and wrote over and over again that he was Peter and so on for, for no reason. You know, uh, so it's, it's, it's crazy. And so it's very clear that that in fact is Peter and that uh, he was acknowledged as such from the very time he was buried. Uh, the forensic evidence it matches exactly with what it should and um, the location has been affirmed over and over and over again not just in recent years but actually going back to the very beginning Constantine and earlier the earliest Christians right and then so there's that end of things which I find impossible to believe that people would risk their life for for that uh, you know to, right. for something they didn't believe in basically. that's right on the other end um, of the timeline the controversy seems to center around the bones and the fact that they were removed and put in storage and then rediscovered and so then um, the sort of the skeptical response is well how do we know these weren't just some other bones I mean how do we know that these were the bones you know because they were sort of lost and then brought back a decade well, later they were in a they were placed in storage in a box and carefully labeled and the guy who did it actually said he did it but you see the the uh, bones from the niche you would have had to put cloth for example you would have had to first get a 60 to 70 year old man and crucify him upside down which is kind of extreme lengths isn't it and uh, then you would have to cover him fine cloth from the first century and gold and purple and you'd have to color the purple with a snail that went extinct in the second century and then you would have to you know you'd have to sort of put all that together in a package and of course everybody would have to be lying in the in the vatican that was involved in the process so it was, it's, I'm a lawyer. Um, look, I'd try that case any time. Uh, that hits the implausible. Right, so it does seem pretty clear that the bones are authentically the bones of a 60 to 70 year old man from the first century who, um, whose ankles were apparently was, sawed off or cut right. off. And because the feet are missing, right. as I understand. And he has nail marks. So there's certainly evidence that this is a crucified, a crucifixion victim. Absolutely. Um, and then this purple cloth then is clearly an indication that he was a 
revered right. and the, um, uh, that combination right. uh, is, is something that, um, like you said, would have to be very, and a very elaborate forgery to try to find the bones and the cloth and put them together and then pass them well, off as the bones of St. Peter. Because they would have had to be authentic artifacts that were found somewhere else. We know no later than 100 A.D. that the marker, Gaius's marker, was placed directly over those bones. We know the bones were there because they have dirt that matches exactly the dirt under Gaius's marker, forensically. And we know that Gaius's trophy or Gaius's marker dates from sometime between, sometime before 150 A.D. and most likely very close to 100 A.D. So what would you say, I, I know in your preface to your book, you say that you personally felt called to tell the story and to put it in a book and to get the word out there, basically, because, um, uh, you know, it's really, I mean, the Pope Francis presented the bones as a relic and so right. forth, but it's not really... Um, a story, a narrative that's necessarily well known at this point. What would you say you feel is the, the, the you know, stepping back from the, the history and all these fascinating people involved, what's the meaning for us, you know, in our time right now, 2018, in terms of what should this mean to us? Well, there are several things. First, most fundamentally, most importantly, the inscriptions that they carved in the first, second, and early third centuries showed that the guys who actually knew Christ or were very close to knowing him believed exactly what we believe. They believed in, the, in redemption. Uh, they believed that he was executed and then came to life again. They believed in the resurrection. Um, they were people very close to the, to the time and likely some of the very same people that, that may have known him back in uh, in Israel, they uh, believed in very much the same doctrines and stuff that we believe in. Uh, they believed in eternal life. Uh, they believed in salvation through Christ's sacrifice. And the simple theology of these scratches and carved in the stone shows that from the very beginning, that's what people really did believe. It wasn't some fairy tale later on. The second thing that's very important is that these are among the oldest scientifically authenticated relics in the entire Christian world. Uh, so I think they confront people with reality. In other words, uh, this is not a, a Marvel you know, hero movie. It's, uh, it's the real thing. Uh, there really was an era. He really did burn down Rome. He really did crucify Peter. Uh, and as Tacitus says, he really did butcher all those Christians. That all actually uh, that all actually happened, and so in a secular world, it confronts us all to to actually um, actually consider reality, the real reality that these people actually existed, that they believed what they believed. Of course, to me, it's as it was to Carducci, it's incredibly inspiring to think of the little Christians for three centuries under threat of uh, death if they were caught at all, sitting there carving these, these inscriptions around Peter's uh, grave. What incredibly brave people to risk everything 
to do that. Um, if you go see this Gavi tour, it's a tremendous, uh, to me, a tremendous parable. You start off at the bottom of a hill that's maybe 60 feet down, and you walk by these magnificent Roman graves that are fabulous, and then you get to these very simple little Christian graves, uh, a couple of the popes from the first century, and then Peter buried in this out of a wall and buried in this little trophy before that. And you say, oh, the Romans had such fabulous things, and the Christians had, why? Well, the reason is, of course, to the Romans, they thought they were gonna spend the rest of eternity there. That was it. To the Christians, this was just a gate, a, a way to go, you're passing through into another world. And so it's a true parable about the difference. Um, also consider for just a second here, the Romans, the greatest empire in the world. This is the classical age, the Pax Romana, most powerful empire ever put together on earth. And where do they end up? They end up with a church being built on them of all these guys that they were, that they were uh, torturing to death and so on. And they end up 60 feet underground uh, you know, with tourists coming through, which is probably really happy to have the tourists, and uh, with this immense church. So it's a, it's a great parable in and of itself. Uh, the reason I wrote the book is I thought it was so important in a totally secular age to actually understand uh, real history, scientifically authenticated history. Um, and I thought that the story had been really repressed and so on by a secular press. And, that they were afraid of the story. One of the other things that struck me was that um, how at the very beginning of the church, the, the place where Peter's body was thrown out on the trash became a place where the Christians would gather, it seems, and pray and, and as best they could in secret meet with each other. Um, and that it was very important to them to meet in that location. Um, that was something that really struck me, um, that the, the, the site of, his, of his, where his body was, had a, a, was worth risking their lives for, to, to go back to that place. Um, you know, of the first 32 uh, popes, First 32 bishops of Rome, popes. Do you know all 32 were executed by the Romans? It was a death sentence to become the bishop of Rome or the pope, and they were executed in terrible ways. The last of them was actually the nephew of Diocletian, the emperor, and he executed him anyway, Diocletian did. And so it was a, it was a terribly dangerous thing for people to do. They not only executed the people, but they executed their enslaved or executed their wives, their children. They seized all their property. Uh, I thought often, if someone went to me and said, hey, if you don't renounce your faith, I'll kill you, I'd say, go ahead. But if someone went to me and said, okay, if you don't renounce your faith, I'm gonna kill all your grandchildren, I can't imagine what degree of courage it would have taken to say, go ahead. And I'm not sure I would have said, go ahead. I don't think I have that degree of courage, but that's what they did. They said, go ahead. Well, the other thing that struck me on the other end of the timeline again is that, um, you know, George Drake, um, after giving everything to the Catholic Church, apparently he, you said he donated his property in Colorado he to did. the Billy Graham's organization. He did. He loved, uh, 
he, he, they loved uh, that uh, property in Colorado. It was uh, called Glen Erie. There had been a castle actually built there in the 1880s and sort of fallen into ruin. He restored it, uh, built a bowling alley in part of it, and then a smaller house they could all stay at. And I told the story of, uh, in 1943, Howard Hughes uh, had the, you know, uh, made the movie The Outlaw. The Outlaw was very risque and it became famous because of Jane Russell, and Jane Russell was introduced at the Academy Awards by Bob Hope as the two and only Jane Russell. Well, the Catholic Church then condemned the outlaw in any theater showing it. Well, the Strakes are all sitting up there in 1944 in uh, Glen Erie, and who shows up? The whole cast of the outlaw, Jane Russell, and Robert Mitchum, and the little Strake children are thinking, we're all going to hell. This is really bad. Well, the Clary was really fundamental. Uh, George Strick always wanted to have a place of peace like that. If you watch the movie um, Lost Horizons you, with Shangri-La, you'd sort of understand how he felt. That was about a war veteran who finally gets to Shangri-La. And any event, in 1954, he actually gave it all away. He gave the whole property to the Billy uh, Association, organization associated with Billy Graham. They wanted a lake, his property in a lake called Eagle, Eagle's Nest, too. And he just he said, I'm sorry, I can't give it to you. So he was giving him the uh, property. And then the morning of the closing, he showed up and said, yeah, I'm going to give you this Eagle Nest, too. And he just threw it in and so on. Um, he did it because he thought that, you know, thousands and thousands of campers and other people could use it. And that was typical. The great thing about George Strait is that he was a sacrificial giver. It's one thing to approach the end of your life when your hands can no longer control anything and give stuff away. It's another thing to give away things that really hurt you, that you want to keep. The amazing thing about George Shrek is that's what he did over and over again. He gave away stuff that he really wanted to keep and he, he gave it away um, for God's purposes. Sometimes, uh, you know, for any number of uh, purposes, sometimes for scout camps, sometimes for hospitals, uh, and often with the Pope on huge endeavors, aiding the Jews and the like. And what would you say for listeners is the takeaway? You know, what should we do now that we have, after really almost 2,000 years, we have this, this, what, what the people didn't have for you know at least a thousand years, they didn't really know where St. Yeah, Peter's. No idea what was under there. Yeah. So, amazing? but we have this now. What what is this? Um, well, the takeaway. Should this from, inspire us to do? You know? There's no question. The takeaway from Strake's life is that you you can't be owned by material object. If you become owned by the things you have, then you you've lost everything. Uh, if you really become owned by the possessions you have they're all gonna go away. And so if that's all you are, you, you've lost everything. Um, that inspires us all to be generous and to be sacrificial in, in the way we live our lives. Um, that's Strake's message, I think. Garducci, Garducci's incredible determination of faith in the end uh, is it, it, absolutely amazing. Imagine a woman of 76 to 95 years old 
uncorking the discoveries that she uncorked. Um, and she was driven by incredible, in the end, by incredible faith. She began as an agnostic, and then, as she says, her science produced her faith. And uh, from her faith, there, she gained incredible determination. And she kept going until the end. Heck, I'm 72 or 73. I wouldn't even be at the age that Carducci retired at, and I feel pretty old. And she kept, kept going for another 20 years. Uh, amazing, uncorking discovery after discovery and fighting this, uh, this great battle. Of course, Father Ferrua, um, you know, worked very hard in the early years and he just lost sight of the big picture. That was the sad thing about him. From Pope Paul VI, Pope Paul VI uh, really spent his life helping refugees and so he his lesson to me is the lesson of uh, you know Christ do unto others as you would have them do unto as you would do, have them do unto you and so uh, his lesson is a lesson of compassion for everyone believers and non-believers uh, pious pious's lesson is faith incredible faith that caused him to go down there uh, and do that incredible courage in taking on the Nazis, the fascists, and then the communists. Um, the original, uh, the original courageous guy. He was the original, uh, you know, uh, John Paul II, really in an earlier age, now, now forgotten. Well, I have to say, I did find this book not only fascinating, but um, personally moving, really, much more so than I expected. Um, and it, I think it is exactly because you managed to bring in, you know, not only the fascinating scientific details, the archaeological discoveries, <clears throat> and all of that information, which is so fascinating, but in addition, you, you also really bring alive all these people who dedicated themselves, and I, I find that very moving, and the connection between these people, the sense that, um, from the first century to the 20th century and now into the 21st that we we really have the church that's not only um, an artifact or an archaeological site but is the people who who, who really make that physical um, uh, inheritance meaningful. It's really the sacrifices of all these believers and the extraordinary things they did um, against all odds that I found really you know, inspiring talk, personally. Um, it's a hard time for the church. You have, uh, you know, some people who are priests that we all, exactly as the Bible predicts, by the way, who have acted uh, badly and so on, so you could be completely disillusioned. That would be a terribly mistaken reaction. It would be like those uh, priests who ran into the statue of the half-naked Roman guy, threw it in the Tiber and sealed everything up because they didn't really believe. And the truth is, uh, our belief is never in human beings. It's always in uh, Christ and, uh, and in God and in what he told us. And uh, there is no evidence that they are ever wrong or that they do things the wrong way. And that's, as long as we believe in them, We've got, uh, you know, we've got a rock that we can believe in forever. Um, 
and that's that's kind of what I draw out to it. So it's a story of human foibles, okay. I mean, uh, Father Faroe worked really hard in that 10-year period and then sort of lost sight of what was important, um, you know, and you can pick and choose here and there, but uh, in the end, uh, they actually fought through the correct result and so on. Um, there, it is amazing the fortuities in the in the, the workmen falling in and finding room. If that hadn't happened, none of it would happen. If they hadn't located Carducci, nobody else in the world could have decrypted those inscriptions. It would never uh, would never have happened in a million years. If they hadn't uh, come back in, Pope Benedict, and restudied the entire thing, why, you know, Peter would have still been shoved off into a closet and they would have ignored all those inscriptions. Um, now they're, the inscriptions are back in the Vatican Guide. Uh, Peter's back in the proper place. And uh, although Garducci isn't as fully acknowledged perhaps as she should be, the important thing is the discoveries are acknowledged that she made. And so that truth finds its way through. We just have to have enough confidence to believe in the end it, it you know, God will make sure everything turns out the, the right way. Um, so that's what I draw out of the whole thing. And to me, it was a great story of faith. Uh, I was moved immensely by the, those inscriptions. Um, and I was moved immensely by the, the early Christians actually having the courage to carve all those, knowing they could be killed at any time for doing that, and weren't being killed at any time for doing it. Thank you so much. I really hope many people are able oh. to hear this and be inspired by it. Thank you. I agree Thank you with Courtney. you that this is this is some this just knowing about it is inspiring. It's an amazing, uh, absolutely amazing story.